Amen. Before the children are dismissed, uh, as we've been trying to do every week this month, and we'll continue to do this month and even next month, uh, is have a testimony time. Uh, and this week we're going to hear from uh, Chris and Allison Bauer. Chris is the guy who plays the drums, well, almost every week, um, that, uh, that you see in the back there. And Allison is, uh, well, over here. Uh, they're going to come up and, and talk to you a little bit about what God has done in their life in the last, gosh, 10 years? Yeah, 11 years. So enjoy. Good morning. As uh, Jonathan said, I'm Chris Bauer, and this is my wife, Allison. We have four children, Ryan, Rachel, Adrian, and Alexandria. And uh, like he said, about 11 years ago, we uh, started a journey called a mission, if you will, uh, that was requested to us by the Lord. And um, with his help, we've made it this far, and also with a lot of help from people in this room. And so we thank you for that. But in the end, we want... Um, God to have all the glory. So um, with that, I'll turn it over to Allison. She's a lot better public speaker than I am. I, I like to hide back behind the drums. <laughs> I don't know about better, but um, as I look back over the years in retro- retrospect, it was really um, amazing to me how God has orchestrated this whole chain of events. And... Um, how he decided to bless us with a family that we would have never dreamed of having in a million years. Um, Back in 1999, I found myself working at a school for teen parents called Star High School. It was a school designated for parents or teenagers, high schoolers that were either pregnant or had children already. And uh, it was exactly where I wanted to be. And that the background to that story is, is a long Long background that Terry would tell you it would take about 12 hours for me to tell you. So, um, <laughs> But I was working at this school for teen parents, and through the course of time, several of the students would come and just spend a little bit of time with us at our home, you know, come over for dinner one night or, you know, go on a family activity, something like that. And in the course of that, Yolanda was one of the students that spent some time with our family and probably spent a little bit more time with our family than some others. She had Adrian already. Adrian at that point was around a year old. And shortly after the school year had started, we found out that she was pregnant, and she was pregnant with Alexandria. Um, Yolanda at this point was about 16 years old. Um, one day I went to school, went to work, and things were going along as normal, and Yolanda came and sat down in my office and said, my grandmother told me not to come home today. And I said, okay, um, what do you mean? Like she just needs a break? She wants you to go somewhere for it? No, she told me that I need to find somewhere else to live. So we got together as a staff. We did everything that we thought we needed to do, called Department of Children and Families, and their response to us as a staff was, is there anybody there willing to take this girl home? And we all looked at each other, and I said, and, you know, different people said different things. And I said, well, I've got to call my husband. <laughs> and I picked up the phone and I called Chris. And he said, they got to have a place to go. Bring them home. So Yolanda and Adrian came to live with us. And um, through the course of a couple of years, um, Yolanda and her children lived with us on and off 
through the course of a couple of years span of time. She graduated high school, she got a place on her own, and was doing fairly well until I got a phone call one day that said, can you and Chris take the kids for a while? Um, I'm being evicted, and I'm gonna have to live from place to place for a while, and I just need a chance to get on my feet. And so once again, I called Chris, I said, <laughs> um, Yolanda wants us to come get the kids, and you know, she, you know, this is what's going on, and he said, go get the kids. And please, I know that there's not very many men who would say, go pick up these two kids. Um, at that point, my son was going into his senior year of high school, and I had a daughter that was in middle school, and we were busy. Um, but we went and we got the kids, and, and you know, we were thinking short term, and God was thinking long term. <laughs> And so we, we picked up the children, and life has never been the same, I can tell you that. It has brought innumerable, innumerable blessings to our life. It has brought stress to our life as well. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to get up here and tell you that if you, you know, feel, see the need in someone, and you feel that compassion, and you act on that, that life is just roses, and everything is great for men. You know, it takes sacrifice. And it's taken sacrifice on the part of our family, on the part of our extended family, on the part of um, people in this church, our friends, and people who love us and care about us. It's taken sacrifice on everyone's part because I truly believe it does take a village to raise a child. And um, you guys are a part of our village, and we appreciate that. Um, some of the greatest sacrifice probably came on the part of our older two children. Um, they, they sacrificed time with us. They sacrificed being able to do some things that they probably would have been able to do that they couldn't do after that. Um, but it was also those two older children who, when we thought, is too much and we can't do this anymore, not because it was too much in regard to Adrian and Lexi, but just all the extenuating circumstances that went along with that. And, and we were ready to just say, we can't do this anymore. And those two older children came to us and said, that's our brother and our sister. And you can't give up. And so we didn't. So God speaks through your children. When you speak into their lives and you show them by example the things that he wants you to do and the sacrifices that he wants you to make, they'll speak back those words into your life when you most need it. And, and we needed to hear that from them. And so we did. Um, but I say all of that to say to you, all, we didn't do anything extraordinary. Um, I'm not the greatest parent in the world. He's not the greatest parent in the world. It wasn't because we were wonderful parents that God called us to this mission. Um, Ashley and I have had that conversation a lot of times. Um, we were there. We saw a need. We felt compassion. And I would please encourage you, whenever you see a need, don't feel pity. Feel compassion and let that compassion move your heart to act in the way that God's calling you to act. Um, that's all we did. We just we felt compassion for a young girl and her children, and it has forever changed our lives. And we did act. and And there have been times where we've sat back and gone, "Did we really do this? <laughs> did we really ask for this?" And we did. And we're so glad we did. Adrian and Lexi are an amazing blessing to our lives. And it's amazing to see God work in their lives and the growth that's happening in them. And Adrian went to youth camp for the first time this, this last 
last weekend or so and you know just to hear him come home and talk about the fun that he's having with young people in this church and you know to them we're mom and dad and to them and to us they're our children um it's an it's an interesting family family intertwining because their mom is still involved yolanda is still in contact with us and with them and it's just an amazing story that god is working out in love and it's been quite the journey but it's been a great journey it's had its definite ups and downs but it's just a picture of god's faithfulness to us when we're obedient to him and and it's just a picture of how big his love is because i can tell you that chris and i had already said many years ago we're done two that's it it's over um we had discussed many times how we were so glad we weren't having any more children and um and you know talked about what things that we were going to do whenever we you know but god had a different plan and we're we're very very glad that he did so you know there's opportunities out there for you keep your eyes open for them Uh, good. Well, we need Kleenex in every pew now. Um, <clears throat> that's great. Praise God. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Um, we are in the middle of a series this summer looking at kind of what it means for us to be called into a life of mercy and mission, and it's the reason why we have people who we think exemplify kind of what it means to respond to God's call in that uh, up here in front of you. So as we contemplate what what we mean by these things, and as Chris and Allison have come and, and showed us kind of a snapshot of, of what we're trying to go after, uh, we've said all along uh, this, this month that the distinguishing mark of a true Christian is a life of radical generosity and mercy towards the poor and the needy. <coughs> Excuse me, and that is kind of, that is what God is going to be looking for on Judgment Day, and so we thought we better take at least a month, four weeks, to kind of look at some different places in the Bible where, where God talks about these things. This theme kind of emerges, and really it emerges all the way through. It's a thread throughout the entire story of the Bible. And so this morning we're going to be in the Gospels and look at what Jesus has to say. From Luke chapter 12, very, very um, passionate, very famous passage of Scripture, uh, and I hope it will be a blessing to you this morning as well. So from Luke 12, verses 13 through 34, we're going to read, Okay. So follow along with me if you would uh, in your Bible, or it's printed for you in the worship folder, or it's on the screen behind me as well. Let's read. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who has made me a judge or arbiter over you? And And he said to them, Take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, I tell you that, I, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. 
Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them instead. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches. And no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is God's word. Okay, we make that demarcation right there. This is God's word. So everything before that was God's word. Everything from this point on is not God's word. Okay? That's an important thing. I was reminded of that this week with a conversation with a friend. It's important because these things are very hard. And I'm going to try to help us apply it as best I can. But everything I have to say this morning is just an application of what God says, and to be as close to the teaching of Scripture as possible. And I say that because there's some pretty hard things here, aren't there? And so we've got to deal with them, okay? So what we've been saying is that the distinguishing mark of a true Christian is a life of radical generosity. And the reason is is that when a Christian, when Chris and Allison saw two kids who needed a home, they knew they were looking in a mirror, When you see somebody in need, when a Christian sees somebody who's in need, they know they're looking in a mirror. And so the more you come to understand what it means to be saved by grace through faith, the more it's going to propel you out into a life of justice. And to this point, we've been really big picture, but I hope this morning we're going to be a little more practical because this passage here is very practical. And so as we think about what it means for us to go to the least, right, we have to talk about how it impacts our attitude towards our treasures. This is a passage about how to live faithfully with your treasures, about how you live faithfully when God blesses you with a bunch. It begins with a story you see there about a man whose land produced plentifully, verse 16. So when God blesses you and you have money to spare and a bunch of stuff, which, by the way, is about 97% of the people in this room, you know, what do you do with your money and your stuff? And how does that relate to to the command to go and do justice and love mercy? That's what we've got to talk about this morning. And so the summary of the teaching is just this. There's there's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so this morning what we want to do is we want to ask, what does it mean to store up treasures on earth? And then what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? And how do you find the courage or the motivation to do the second rather than the first? That's what we want to do. Okay? So let's just begin with the idea, what does Jesus mean when he says, do not store up treasures on earth? Well, very simply, it means uh, to not live for yourself, to not live selfishly. Look at verse 15, to not live in covetousness, in abundance of possessions. In verse 15, Jesus there describes a person who lives with a strong desire to acquire more and more and more possessions and to have more than other people, people have, but all of it really irrespective of need. In other words, it's, it's this desire to live with more than you need. It's avarice or greed. That's what Jesus is describing. And this hard attitude of covetousness there 
leads to storing up. And you see this over and over again, don't you, in this passage? It's a word play that kind of gets worked out as you go through this passage of Scripture. And that Greek word that keeps store up, don't store up, they store houses. You know, all these different, it's the same word throughout, and it's an interesting, it's the Greek word synagogue, which is, means a, a gathering or an assembly, a synagogue. In other words, if you're greedy, what the Scripture's teaching us is the, the, the metaphor, really, is this, is that the way you know you're greedy is you do this with your possessions. You take your money and your possessions and you, you do this. Right? That really is the picture. You, 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 you gather them into yourself, right? You amass as many things as you can and you take them in and you hold them to your breast and you grab onto them as tightly as you can and you make sure nobody comes in and takes them away from you and you use them all for your personal enjoyment. And to help us further, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate this principle about a man who found himself extremely blessed. His land, you see there, produced bountifully. And so, so much so that he had nowhere to store all the harvest. And so he comes up with an idea. I'll build bigger barns to store my grain and provide for myself a life of prosperity and ease. But God says to him, you fool, verse 20, you fool. So in Jesus' mind, there's something very wrong and even destructive about the way this man's living his life. It's foolish. And so we have to ask, okay, then what's so wrong about it? Why is it so dangerous? Because that seems like that's what the television tells us to do. But Jesus says it's foolish. So we've got to make sense of this. And I think there's a couple of things here. First, I think this, this is being revealed by Jesus as being a foolish and destructive theology. This man lives with a false sense of ownership. Look in the passage. Five times he uses the singular possessive. My crops, my barns, my grain, my good, my soul. Right, we were talking this morning, it's the, it's the, uh, uh, the scene from Finding Nemo where the, th- the fish drops on the dock and all the, and all the seagulls are there. Mine, 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 right? Mine, 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 mine. Me, 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 my, my, my. I mean, this, everything's my, my, my. His land produces bountifully, but who sent the rain for the crops to grow? Who calls forth the sun over the horizon every morning? See, but he doesn't see himself as a steward. He has a false sense of ownership. He doesn't see his wealth as a gift, but as something that he has earned through his hard work. So he falsely assumes he has the right to do whatever he wants to with it. He can make decisions. He's the master of his fate and the captain of his soul. And this makes him a fool. Because not only does he not realize that they're God's crops and God's barns and God's grain and God's goods, but it's God's soul. You see, he says, Jesus says, you fool, even your soul will be required of you. And the wording there is very intentional. It is the wording that is used to refer to the repayment of a loan. His soul is on loan to God. And so are his possessions and his barns and his goods, all of it. False sense of ownership. There's a story about John Wesley, uh, the, you know, the... the founder of Methodism, who was riding along one day and, and a messenger from the town he lived in came out in a huff and, uh, Pastor, Pastor, your house is burning down. And his response in the moment was, no, my house is not burning down. The Lord's house is burning down. And that means one less responsibility for me. Right, that's what this guy doesn't get. So there's this bad, this foolish and destructive theology. Second, there's a foolish and destructive attitude towards the community that you see here. This guy, look at him. He talks to himself a lot, doesn't he? And Jesus is masterful in his characterization of people, okay? Can I tell you? I mean, it's intentional. And this guy likes to talk to himself. 
I say to myself, soul, he speaks to his soul. I say to my soul, soul. Right, this, he, he, you know, this is a guy who refers to himself in the, you know, Drew thinks that's very nice of you. I mean, you'd, you know, you'd think me very strange. And yeah, this is what this guy does. And what Jesus is trying to convey is he is fundamentally alone. He is cut off from the rest of the community. I mean, his selfishness is so profound that he's isolated. The first person singular is used six times. He's all alone. And Kenneth Bailey, a commentator who has traveled extensively in the Middle East and tries to read the stories of Jesus from a Middle Eastern perspective, he picks up on this detail in the parable, and here's what he writes. And I thought this was really helpful. He says, In the Middle East, life is lived in tightly knit communities. The leaning men of the village still sit at the gates and spend literally years talking to one another. The slightest transaction is worthy of hours of discussion. The elder in such a community makes up his mind in community. He decides what he will do after hours of discussion with his friends. He does his thinking in a crowd. But the text does not read, he said, to, excuse me, but this text says, it does not say he said to himself, rather this man's dialogues with himself. He obviously has no one else to talk to. He trusts no one and has no friends or cronies with whom he can exchange ideas. When he needs a dialogue, he can talk only to himself. Thus we begin to get Jesus' picture of the kind of prison that wealth can build. He has money to buy a vacuum and to live in it. And life in this vacuum creates his own realities. And out of this warped perspective, we hear him announce his solution. And that's powerful. He talks to himself, but what Jesus is trying to help us see is that we need one another. The worst thing we could possibly do is to put a no trespassing sign over our financial lives and refuse to seek counsel with one another and help. It's the quickest and surest way to giving in to greed and materialism, especially in a culture like ours, consumed with consuming. So then, thirdly, I think there's a, there's a foolish and destructive goal, too. So a destructive theology, a destructive attitude towards community, a destructive goal. And you can see his goal in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Boy, doesn't that sound like a great retirement plan? <laughs> Amass enough wealth that you can be secure enough to relax and enjoy the good life. But there's something very specific going on in the words Jesus uses that are lost in translation that are marvelous. Um, (coughs) And it all centers around the word in the Greek, which is the Greek word euphoria. It literally is the Greek word euphoria. That's this man's goal, euphoria. And of course we know that word, don't we? It's directly translated into our English, euphoria. The sense of overriding joy, the good life, whatever, however you might translate that. Eat, drink. And be merry. This intense feeling of happiness. That's euphoria. But how do you find it? How do you get it? <clears throat> I'm having a hard time in my chest this morning. Sorry. <clears throat> and here's where things go wrong for him. He has a formula he's following. Let me try to translate it as best I can. You can see it there. It's right there. But he, this is this guy's strategy. The more you have, the happier you will be. That's his strategy. And both of those are an, in, an interplay between that, that root word, euphoria. The more you have, thank you, Tony, the happier you will be. Appreciate it. Uh, That's this man's life mission statement, you might say. The more you have, the happier you will be. The abundance of wealth and possessions and resources and stuff leads to an abundant life. That's what he believes, and that's his goal. And Jesus is absolutely brilliant because he takes the same root, that root euphoria. What he does is he takes the root, and he attaches a prefix to it. I know this is getting grammatically. I mean, if you're not, if you hated English in 
school, just zone out for about the next 20 seconds. Okay? Jesus attaches a, a, a prefix that is a negative root. So the same way we would say a moral person, and then if you attach the amoral, so an amoral person is a person that's not moral. Jesus does the same thing here, and he says, you're looking for euphoria, but in reality you're a fool. And the word fool is the Greek word for euphoria with an A on the front of it. In other words, the rich, the rich man thinks that, that his many things, his euphoreo, will produce the good life, euphoria. But in reality, it's the ex- exact opposite. It produces no life, no euphoria. You're a fool to live that way, Jesus says. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And this is what the Bible means when it talks about storing up treasures on earth, living selfishly, spending all of your time and your money just on you, trying to enrich yourself, trying to amass wealth and material possessions in a vain attempt to experience euphoria. But Jesus says very plainly, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's foolish. Purses don't come with U-Hauls. There's no real and lasting joy in that. You'll end up poor, not rich. Rich in earthly possessions, but not rich toward God, verse 21. But store up treasures in heaven. So what does that mean? Well, here's where we've got to go. We've got to skip down to the last part of this passage that deals with this second part of what it means Jesus means by storing up treasures in heaven. And we see there that there's a negative command, a positive command, and an application very quickly. And so Jesus says, if you want to know what it means to store up treasure in heaven... Then negatively, look at verse 29, 30, and 31. Negatively, it means you stop seeking after possessions and provision. Verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all of the nations seek after such things. And we read that, right? And you can very easily read that and say, well, you know, Jesus couldn't have meant, you know, he couldn't have, he couldn't have, I mean, he doesn't really mean that. I mean, that's irresponsible, Right? I mean, we're so saturated with an American value system, and yet there it is, right there, and we have to deal with it. Do not seek what you are to eat. I mean, does that mean don't work hard? Let go and let God, whatever that means. Right? It's kind of, I'm just like, hey, I'm it's cool, man. You know, what, what does he, it can't mean, that, that don't work hard. I mean, and the key is that word seek. What does Jesus mean by do not seek, but seek? So see, he says don't seek, but seek. And it's interesting. It's a technical term for the philosophical investigation. So what are you, right? The man, I was thinking, of, I don't know why. This is so stupid. But I was thinking about, you know, in the first, the, the first new cool Batman movies where, Bat, where, you know, Bruce Wayne has to climb to the top of the mountain and he's about to suffocate to death because it's way up in... Tibet somewhere, and he gets to the top, and he bangs on the monastery door, and he walks in, and there's all, and what do you seek, you know? In other words, that, that's kind of the idea. What is at the bottom of what you're trying to figure out? What are the deepest questions and desires of, the, of your heart? What is your motivational core? What's driving you? In other words, what's behind your decision-making? That's what Jesus is trying to get at here, and it's very, it's very complex, and the reason I know it is is because the NIV translates the same word three different ways in these three verses. Same word, three different ways. So if you have, if you have an NIV, verse 29 goes like this. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. And then in verse 30, for the pagan world runs after these things. And then in verse 31, the NIV says, but then seek his kingdom. So this word refers to the deeper motivational desires of the heart, what your heart's set on. 
right, what you're running after, what you're trying to gain. I mean, this isn't about whether it's right to work hard or to take it easy, but about why, the motivation behind your work, the heart desire driving your work. I mean, you can work hard and be driven by a number of different things. You can be work hard and be driven by a desire for worldly treasures, or you can work hard and be driven by a desire to see God glorified and see his kingdom come, right? And to obey Jesus' command to store up treasures in heaven means first that you that we have to have a new motivation for obedience. Not seeking worldly treasures. Not seeking to provide for ourselves. That is what Jesus is saying. Don't seek earthly provision or earthly possessions. Don't put all of your time and your energy into, into that. God's got that covered. Now go and work. Go and work. But don't make the aim of your work to make as much money as possible. That's not what work's about. Work is about seeking God's kingdom, verse 31. And that's the positive command. The second part of obeying Jesus' command. Do not seek what you will eat and drink, verse 29, but seek his kingdom, verse 31. Christians, can I just say, Christians don't work to make as much money as possible. Americans do. Christians don't. We don't even work to provide for our families. I want to come back to that in a minute. On Father's Day. We work to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we work to see all of creation joyfully embrace God's reign and rule. And according to Jesus, that should be our goal. That's our motivational core. That's what our heart should be set on. That's what should be driving us. But what does that practically look like? I mean, all of this that we've been talking about. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Right? Okay, great. But it's still so fuzzy to me. And I love that Jesus doesn't leave you in the dark. He answers the question. And so finally, the application. Verse 33. Here's Jesus' application then of what it means for us to not seek earthly treasures, but to seek heavenly treasures. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, if you want to make the connection, and I want, you, I want you to be able to make this connection. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures on earth, and then you're probably familiar, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is a parallel passage here. Provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old and a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief, right? So you see the similarities. But what's interesting is that in this passage, Luke substitutes the phrase, store up treasures in heaven with sell your possessions and give to the needy. In other words, biblically, the way you store up treasure in heaven is to give away earthly treasures to those who need them the most. Remember the story of the rich fool, right? To store up earthly treasures means you you gather all of your stuff in and you hold it really tightly. This is the opposite. To store up heavenly treasure means you take all of your stuff and you give it away. Now, this can mean literally... You have an extra bedroom and there's a kid who needs a home and you bring him into your house. It could mean you have more than you need and so you sell off some of the excess and give it to the poor. It could mean you downsize into a smaller house or from two cars to one or to increase your capacity. I, you know, it, means, it could mean you have a CD and you cash it out and you because you don't really need it for future income and you can be generous with the money. I don't know. I don't know. You know, but I do know what Jesus teaches here is that the motivation... For all that he's calling us to here is that earthly treasures wear out because heavenly tre- earthly treasures wear out, but heavenly treasures are lasting. Do you see that he says, "Don't provide for yourself a money bag that will never, you know, that will never wear out, 
And so this is the motivation. And if you have a child, you know what this is, don't you? There's, there's this certain toy the kid wants so badly, and you get it for him for Christmas, and for about three months. I mean, it's all they, every morning when they wake up, they want to play with that toy. And then eventually you realize they play with it less and less. And then ultimately it just sits on the shelf unused. What happened? It got old. And Jesus' point is that every earthly treasure is like that. They may promise a lot, and for a little while they may fill our lives with joy, but eventually they wear out. The shiny new car gets dented and rusted, or the boat is suddenly not big enough, and so you need a bigger one, or whatever it might be. And the reason Jesus says we should forsake earthly treasures for heavenly ones is that heavenly treasures never grow old. Heavenly treasure never fails. It delivers on what it promises. And so I I just, at the end, I mean, this is, I'm telling you, I, I feel knee-deep in all of this, and so I just want to be the first to confess that I find it hard to be obedient to this and that I need to lead us out of repentance. I mean, this is hard for me. It's hard for me because most of the time I feel like I'm barely getting by and I don't really know how to do this. It's hard for me because the few times I've really put myself out there and tried to be faithful to follow Jesus, I've been burned bad. So I really fight cynicism because it's so hard. Uh, And because it's so hard, we need to invite one another into decisions, and we need to be willing to speak hard truth to one another. So, for example, Ashley and I was thinking about this. We have our house up for sale because um, we bought it when our kids were little, and now they're not little, they're big, and we'd like a different setup or a bigger yard, maybe, you know, pool. I mean, we're just kind of whatever. And we're blessed to have good friends who are willing to ask hard questions. You know, are you being faithful? I mean, do you really need a bigger house? And I'm really grateful for friends like that. I have to be honest. Uh, because the truth is, I don't know the answers to those questions. I mean, the application of these things to our, heart, our lives is, is just incredibly, incredibly hard. And so we have to be careful. But you see the summary here. The summary, if I could just summarize it and then move to the last point, because I'm running out of time and we need to be done. But to store up treasures on earth means that you amass wealth and material possessions. In other words, I was thinking this way. It really can be like this, more and more, bigger and bigger, higher and higher. But to store up treasure in heaven means you give away earthly treasures to those who need them the most. And so really it's a completely different trajectory, less and less, smaller and smaller, lower and lower. And so I think this passage of Scripture would ask us questions like, are you constantly looking to upgrade? Or are you willing to consider a downsize? But... Does it mean that every time you consider an upgrade, every time you go from something small to something big or from less to more, you're being unfaithful? I really don't think so, but I think the issue is the general direction of your life. Is the general direction and trajectory of your life toward more and more, bigger and bigger, higher and higher, or less and less, smaller and smaller, lower and lower? Is anybody else just overwhelmed? Or mad. Uh, you might be. And so we have to ask, then how do you find the courage to store up treasures in heaven? By giving away earthly treasures to those who need them. And you have to deal with your fear and your anxiety. And that's the whole middle part of this passage in verses 22 through 32. I mean, look at verse 22. Do not be anxious about your life, Jesus says. Verse 32, do not, fear not, do not fear. And this is what keeps us from this radical generosity. You're, some of you are thinking, that guy's, that guy's an idiot. He's 36. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, that is impractical. It's, you know, maybe so. 
But if we really got behind all the objections, I think at the bottom what we would see is we would, we would find we're afraid and we're anxious and we worry about how we're going to pay the bills. And Jesus says very plainly that underneath our fear and our anxiety, verse 28, is unbelief. Oh, you of little faith. Now, let me apply this for Father's Day. And happy Father's Day, by the way. We didn't pray for the, I didn't hear us pray for the dads. Maybe I blocked out, but dads, we're glad you're here. And we, 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 we ought, this is for free, just for a second. We, you know, Mother's Day is like, oh, moms are so great. You're, and Father's Day is like, dad, you stink. You know, dads, we think you're wonderful. We, we, want, to, we want to honor and, 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 you know, boast about our fathers. And so happy Father's Day. But as you think about Father's Day, think about this. If I could just say, if I could apply this just in that one area. Dads, it's not your job to provide for your family. It's God's job to provide for your family. And I know that statement can be misconstrued. You can go to 1 Timothy 5.8, where, where, where we're told we have to provide for our, for our family. And that I, yeah, I, I totally, yes, amen. And that's, a very, you know, that's about some specific issues that were involved in the church. But I just want to say, dads, we don't work to provide for our families. We work for the sake of the kingdom. We don't go to work every day for our wives and children. We go to work every day for God. If, if we go to work for any other reason, that thing is an idol. Is an idol. I mean, we don't, we don't have to bear the burden alone of providing for our families because God is being revealed here by Jesus as a father. I mean, this is a Father's Day sermon. I mean, Jesus says, don't forget you have a father in heaven. And so the excuse I hear all the time, I can't be generous because I have to provide for my family. And what really, you want to re- what really irks me is when Chad Ochocinco turns down the $25 million contract for the $32 million contract, and his justification for that is, well, I've got to provide for my family. Really? Okay. Glad you're being responsible. Right? And that's, that's hyperbole, though. Because you see, because that's because this is what I hear. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't be generous because I got to provide for my family, and I just want to say, be careful because yes, that's true, but there could also be unbelief in there. God's going to provide for your family. Seek first the kingdom, and the way you overcome your anxiety and your fear is to believe that it's God's job to take care of you, and that He will, and that He's faithful and true, and that He'll come through. And you see, in verse thirty-one, when Jesus says, "Seek." His kingdom and all these things will be added to you. It's not just words that don't mean anything. That's a promise that you can trust. And so the psalmist sings. Wasn't it great, Psalm 37? I've been young, I'm now old, and all of the days of my life I've never seen the righteous forsaken or or his children begging bread. Do you believe that? I mean, do you know that? Deep down in your soul, do you believe that to be true? And if you do, then there may be a fight with anxiety and fear but there there will be a peace and a joy that will begin to pervade into those things, and you'll become a person who will be free to be radically generous. If you don't, or if you believe but you don't believe, you'll continue to struggle and you'll live with a little faith that will just strangle you in your ability to be faithful to Jesus. See, See, what Jesus is trying to do in this part of the passage is to increase our faith. He's trying to help us overcome our unbelief so we can be faithful. And so he says, look at the birds, right? Consider the ravens. They don't have storehouses like the guy in the parable. They don't have barns, but they never go hungry because God feeds them. And the point Jesus is trying to make is that God is a father who is near. He's near. 
And part of what we struggle with is this feeling that God is far off, that he's, that he's uninterested, right? That he is um, not involved in detail, the details of our lives. But Jesus says, no, 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 that, that's unbelief. God is near. He's attentive. He's intimately involved in every detail. Of, he feeds birds. He'll feed you. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin, and yet they're gloriously clothed. And Jesus' point here is that the Father's generous. God provides, him, he proves himself lavish and abundantly generous toward the, the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, he could have spent little time on flowers. I mean, let's be honest, right? And yet, he's been so creative. There's so many colors and shapes and such intricate beauty, such care, such generosity, And the point is just this, that the accusation Satan made of God in the garden to Adam and Eve was that he was holding out on them. And Jesus' point is just the opposite. God's not holding out. He's not a miser. He's incredibly generous. You don't have to look further than the flowers in the field to see how generous he is. And so let me come, let me, I mean it this time when I say, let me, let me just close with this. Okay. I had a lot to say. This is a tough passage. Follow Jesus' argument closely here, okay? He says, if God is a father that is so near that he feeds the birds and that is so generous that he clothed, richly clothed the flowers of the field, then he'll be near to you in your need and he'll be generous to you when you need him to be. Because, verse 24, you are far more valuable to him than birds or flowers. He's your father. You're his children. I mean, do you really think God would, let, would feed the birds and let you go hungry? I mean, do you really think he would be generously, generously clothe the flowers of the field and not meet your needs? And again, the core is anxiety. And, and underneath anxiety, unbelief. We believe, but we don't believe in his love and generosity. We believe, but we don't believe in his promises to provide for us. And what we need, what Jesus is trying to help us with is a greater faith, a greater understanding of just how much God loves us. And we get that in the gospel. Because you see, the gospel reveals God's nearness because the gospel teaches that God came near to us in Jesus Christ. God's not far off in the universe, uninterested in what's happening in your life. He's not unaware or unconcerned about your circumstances. He has come near to you in Jesus. He put on flesh and blood and walked among us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's near. But you see, the gospel also reveals his generosity. I mean, do you still struggle to believe that If you do, join the club, me too. What we need to do is we need to look and see what did God do with his treasures? The Bible calls Jesus the one and only son of the father. And that phrase, one and only, the best way to translate that would be to be that the son was the treasured possession of the father. And what did God do with the thing he treasured the most, his only son? He gave him away to have you. And that's how you can know. That's how you can be sure that every other promise will be kept. Romans 8, 31. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? You see, if the Father was willing to part with Jesus in order to provide for our needs, then there's nothing he won't do. He'll come through on every promise. And so we really can listen to Jesus. And not store up, not seek to store up treasures in heaven, but to store up treasures in earth. I mean, excuse me, not seek to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven by giving away our earthly treasures 
to the ones who need them the most. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your nearness to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, that we come to this place and we come into this room with the expectation that you are here to meet with us, that you really have drawn near to come into our lives and to make yourself available to us. And thank you for your generosity that you gave the most priceless, precious thing in the entire universe, your son's life, that you might have us. Would you help us to see all of the ways that you have been near and good to us, and may it heal our unbelief. May we, we cry out to you, we believe, help our unbelief, increase our faith, that we might be faithful to follow you in what you clearly call us to. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I get really overwhelmed with passages like this because I really do want to take the Scripture seriously and I want us to be a people that take the Scripture seriously. Uh, but let me encourage you just to, I think Allison's, Allison's um, advice was great, just to open your eyes and to look around. There's need everywhere. Uh, what's interesting is the story that they told, is God is still uh, continuing that story. They got a call this week from, uh, I guess, DCF, right, or whoever it was, uh, the caseworker, uh, that Lexi and Adrian's younger brother who was living with her grandma, his grandmother and then went to live with an aunt and uncle who are now getting divorced, and now he does not have a place to live, and so he's going to be going into the foster care system, uh, which is just a black hole, as all of you know. And so they called and, and asked, <laughs> asked Allison and Chris, hey, could you maybe take one more? And in praying together this week, you know, and just really wrestling with God with them over this issue... Uh, I, they, they've really come to the conclusion, you know, we, that we just really, this is about all we can handle. But what I said is what, what it would be a great, what I think would be great is if it really does take a village to raise a child. And if God, I mean, one of the neatest things for me was to know Adrian as a one-year-old and to get to baptize him about a year ago because he came into this family and came into the family of God because of his journey into that family. Uh, would it, wouldn't it be great if there was some, some family, maybe some other family in our church who could come alongside of this family, who is ministering to this other family and say, you know what, if they can't take that kid, we can take him. Uh, and we've talked to the caseworker, and so if, if there were by chance a family in our church who would be willing to do that, the caseworker would be very, very thrilled uh, and excited about putting them in a home where they could be in close proximity to their, putting him, in, you know, where he could be near his brother and sister. Uh, and so I just, if we're looking for ways to apply what we're learning, there's one. Uh, if you're at all, if God tugs on your heart about that, you can come and talk to me, talk to Chris and Allison. But as you, you know, as you even consider things like that, I want, to be, I want us to be a church that considers things like that. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? And really seeks to find solutions to hard, hard problems through sacrificial generosity. Uh, and as God calls us to do just that, the promise of the benediction is that he doesn't call us to go and then not go with us. He promises that as we go, he will go with us, with, with, and he'll be near to us, and he'll be generous to us as we go to spend ourselves, to give away earthly treasures, uh, to gain heavenly treasure uh, in the process. So receive the benediction then, which is the promise of his nearness and his generosity. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.